Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcasts about the war which Russia started against Ukraine. The series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center to Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor at ukraineworld.org. We are making this podcast with Tatyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. So today is we are making this episode on the 23rd of April, and we are precisely two months after the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's symbolic that these two months will be tomorrow and this Easter in in the Orthodox, in Eastern Orthodox, let's say, uh, tradition. So Ukraine and Russia will celebrate Easter. This is also kind of a demonic side of this uh, of this war. So we decided to make some conclusions. We made these conclusions after the first month of the war. We are making these conclusions after the two months of the war. So what what could be our conclusions? Yes, indeed. Well, let's talk about conclusions and maybe the most important conclusions. The first one is about the strategic failure of Russia, strategic failure of Russian army in Ukraine during this war, because we do know the initial plan was quite different for, from what we are having now. So the initial plan was quite quick, cruel and radical it was about it was about taking kiev it's uh, it was about destroying the whole ukrainian state about destroying uh, about maybe putting yanukovych in place of zelensky so nothing of this that became true as we see now ukrainian army is quite far away from kiev from Chernigiv. russian army you mean uh, russian army yeah. is quite far away from kiev chernigiv zhitomir and sumy and we are recording this podcast in Kiev, close to Kiev. So in the in the f- place we recorded the first podcast in the series. So this is a kind of symbolic as well. But now we we uh, what we see around us, we see just a kind of uh, coming back to normal life. Mm, normal life in Kiev. We see that people they do come back. And so this strategic feel, uh, failure is evident. So um, the initial plan was to, to denazification, denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine. At that very moment, 21,000 people, soldiers, Russian soldiers are already dead in this war. So it's a huge number. And they have to postpone or maybe put away any plan to conquer the capital. So now what we see, we see this war becoming local once again. So it started as a local combat back in 2014 in Donbass. Now they're coming back to the same scenario. Having some progress surely in the south. Unfortunately, Ukrainian army was uh, unable and maybe after the war we'll clarify the reasons why, was unable to stop Russians uh, coming out from Crimea. It's quite a suitable place to destroy vehicles, to destroy tanks, but anyway, they are there. Um, A big part of Ukrainian South is occupied, unfortunately. Uh, Kherson is occupied, and Mariupol has become a kind of symbol of Ukrainian resistance. city is destroyed, completely destroyed. 95% of buildings are destroyed, and uh, several thousands um, of people are in Azovstal, and maybe 100,000 people, civilians, still in this besieged city with a very very tragic circumstances. But... The Ukraine is resisting, so there is no uh, Russian occupation of Kiev. So maybe this is the, the main result, the first result. And as we speak, uh, it is important to draw attention to Mariupol because there are calls to make a humanitarian corridor. Uh, we have seen even the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church linked to Moscow because we have several Ukrainian Orthodox churches. Onufri uh, declaring his readiness to kind of organize this corridor. We can assume that this statement was not made without without consent of the Russian patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church. 
Unfortunately, the also another demonic side of this war that uh, Russian Orthodox Church supported this war. It supported the destruction, it supported the genocide of Ukrainians. And one of the hypotheses is why, why there is something going on around it. It's, it's because the war addresses to Pope, to, to the Pope of Rome, to help with this humanitarian corridor. And the Russians have tried to take up the initiative. But nobody actually believes that there will be a humanitarian corridor under the, under the current circumstances. Um, th there are news that th there can be some, some of the evacuations, but still civilians are on, on Azovstal. We see many photos, videos. We don't know how, how much resources do they have, how much water. It seems that water is, 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 uh, is running out. The whole Mariupol is without electricity since the 2nd of March, so almost already two months. Russians are making kind of a, you know, this video reports as if they control the city and they restart a normal life, including the schools for children. Well, th this is crazy when you see, when you see pictures, when you see videos in, with children at school, when there are still, you know, fights in the city and they're kind of a, demonstratively showing that the, the kids are coming back to schools and uh, the lessons are starting with the Russian anthem. Have you seen these reports? I mean, on Rio Novosti a few days ago. I mean, we are in, in Brovary, near Kiev. The, the hostilities are no longer here, you know. The Russian army are far away and we don't have the restoration of, of kindergartens and restoration of schools. And they, are and they are demonstrating that, look, oh, we brought those, you know, little kids and we're uh, open yeah. up studying. And Putin declared two days ago when he, he said that there will be no attack on Azovstal. He was saying, so everything is under Russian control, so people can come back now and live peacefully in Mariupol. So just imagine completely destroyed city. I mean, no no real building is in, in, in is still in its place and they are suggesting people to come back to Mariupol without any communication, without any electricity, water, gas, anything. So so this is a kind of kind of huge lie about what's going on in Mariupol. But let's fix for ourselves that this is a great failure. Despite despite all this tragedy of Mariupol which are which is tremendous in fact and despite the losses uh, in 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 civil uh, losses in civilians in, in ukrainian military as well and territories um, occupied now but by, by russia we can still fix that the initial plan didn't work out indeed and therefore they are they're holding for mariupol and trying to present uh, the mariupol as their great victory but actually they really destroyed the city and uh, there is time for international community to do something. There are no international organizations there. Nobody, nobody is working there to help people. Nobody, you know, is, is trying to organize a humanitarian corridor or whatsoever. Uh, Ukrainian defenders of Mariupol uh, told there was an address to the world very emotional by one of the leaders of this defense. They're saying we will never surrender. We will agree on the so-called extraction when there will be a third party, a third country, be it Turkey, Greece, Mariupol has a Greek name, let's not forget, or some other, other country which will you know, be a med mediator and will help to, uh, to organize this corridor. Unfortunately, knowing the Russians, knowing their cruelty, it's hardly we can believe that this is possible, but we should try, and all the world should try. So strategic failure of Putin, of, of Russian plan. I mean, uh, we have the two months of the three-day war, as initially declared, mm -hmm. and uh, Russians do have uh, the territorial gains, but the, they do not go farther. So basically their territorial gains, well, they were close to Mariupol already by the end of February. They, they started... I think the, the siege on 26th of February, 27th. Yeah, and for the first March, it was already already closed city, so there were no possibility to, to, to Because they basically, uh, intentionally, they, they destroyed the electricity supply to the city. And, um, and the secondly, uh, they also very, very fastly, they took Kherson. So these are the questions 
after the war for for Ukrainian leadership why the 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 the, the progress of Russian army to the south was so quick and to the north was so quick yeah because the entry from <clears throat> Crimea let's highlight it is, is quite narrow you know so it was ki- kind of easy to 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 cut it from the rest of the territory maybe to to explode bridges whatsoever just to just to not let Russian army get in so now the key uh, the key scenario the key uh, big thing that we are watching now is the battle for 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 Donbass we already highlighted this in in our previous episodes Russians are trying to encircle Ukrainian army in in the eastern Ukraine in Donbass moving from Nar- Mariupol and Volnovakha north to the northern part and moving from Izum to the Har- from the Kharkiv oblast south in, in the southern direction uh, we don't have much information about it, so our, for example, army is silent. And today there was a statement by the head of Ukrainian army, Mr. Zaluzhny, uh, the uh, chief commander of Ukrainian armed forces, who said that the army is deliberately silent about what's going on because there is a huge battle, so artillery battle, and... Uh, that there can be a nightmare in in the eastern Ukraine right now, as we speak, but we don't have you know enough information about that. So everything will depend on this battle. If Ukraine wins this battle, most probably Russians will be exhausted, and Ukraine will be able to deoccupy de- southern Ukraine, deoccupy northeastern Ukraine, and maybe even go farther and deoccupy the occupied territory since 2014. And even Crimea, it is not excluded at all. Several experts, military experts, say that it is technically possible if the Russian army is not in Crimea, if they will be, for example, going to to Rostov, it depends on the situation at that very moment, but um, Ukraine has all the chances to to counter attack in Crimea as well. So let, let's 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 see it how it goes because um, nothing can be said now for sure. Uh, situation is changing, is dynamic, but uh, military experts say that Ukraine has a lot of chances now. There's a historical window, you know, historical chances now to deoccupy the whole territory. Let's move on and let's talk about maybe the second big conclusion of of these two months' uh, struggles, battle, and it's about our international partners. Yes, we can unfortunately say that uh, the West's faith in Ukraine was very low in the beginning. beginning. So many people really believed that Russians can take Ukraine in three, four days or probably several weeks. We can explain this by the fact that uh, the West was thinking, look, Russians obviously know more about Ukraine than we do because, uh, you know... uh, there are many Russian. Well, Ukrainians are Russian speakers. There are there, there can be many agents of Russia inside Ukraine, and there are historical ties, etc. But we can, I think, we can say that uh, Russia was has become a kind of a victim of its own propaganda, victim of its own disinformation, and uh, the Western partners also with their you know belief that well, of course, Ukraine will lose in this war. Russia is huge. They also became a kind of a victims of this Russian disinformation, even though uh, there is lots of talk that Russian disinformation is bad, etc. But now the situation is changing. We have more and more arms supplies. We cannot detailize it here, but they are also in public domain. So there are many publications about what, what Americans are supplying, what the Europeans are supplying, what the Turks are supplying, etc. And most importantly, in the beginning, without this face in the Ukrainian army, there were no help. Uh, our diplomats are now talking quite openly about the fact that many Westerners were saying, okay, we will not supply your arms now, because it makes no reason. Anyway, you will be, you are lost in several days. So there is no reason that our, our, arm, our arms bec- become in, in several days Russian. 
they will belong to Russia. So that's the reason why uh, the battle in the first days were so tough, really. But Ukrainians already had uh, arms, uh, both Ukrainian and uh, West-supplied arms, and Ukrainians have shown how they, how we are efficient, how Ukrainians are efficient with these arms, how this partisan fights against Russian tanks with the help of javelins, uh, American javelins or British N-Love is, is possible. What yeah. now is going? on. That is a very dangerous uh, trend, uh, saying that the narrative is that, look, we, we uh, in, in the United States, for example, we have seen a report by CNN, for example, recently, in which there was a statement, look, we supply arms to Ukraine, but we know nothing uh, what's happened with arms inside Ukraine, because there are no American embassy, there are no American instructors, Every, everybody was evacuated, and as if it's going to kind of a black hole, Ukraine is a black hole. And this is um, this plays a lot, you know, for Russians, for Russian pro propaganda, because what Russians need right now, they need to cut Western supplies of arms. They need to seed kind of a... Uh, disbelief, disbelief yeah. doubt in the Western society, specifically in the American society, that arming Ukraine is probably arming the you know corrupt state where these arms will be sent to Russia or appear on the black market, etc. We should fight against this disinformation, Russian disinformation. This is all intended to, I'm not saying that CNN just spreads it or whatever, uh, no, of course, I mean, journalists, American journalists have to be critical, have to ask questions. This is uh, absolutely understandable, but you should be sure that uh, the, the capacity of the Ukrainian army depends directly on uh, the supplies from, from the West, on the supplies of, of heavy weaponry, including right, the artillery, shells. Shells are very important because right now on Donbass, this is totally artillery war. Mm -hmm. And uh, and th these supplies are going, and there is lots, you know, the big, this huge uh, number of volunteers helping, of course, not with arms, but with other things. But uh, Ukrainian army gets these supplies. So, and the rhetorics of our international partners has been also changing during these two months. Because in the beginning, I do remember that we were uh, listening to, uh, to, for example, to Stoltenberg, uh, saying that uh, we should do everything possible, everything possible for for this war not to generate, not not to spread away, uh, spread out of Ukraine anywhere in Europe or whatsoever. Now, uh, I would say that the rhetoric is quite mu much more strong about Russia. So they, it's not about, we are, they are not speaking so much about the risks of escalation. But they speak about the concrete ways to help Ukraine because it's a clear understanding that this war can be stopped here in Ukraine, not by saying that we are, we will not supply arms because Putin can attack us, but sending more more weapons here for Ukrainian army to be able to stop Russian army here. This is a change in rhetorics. And this is quite visible because in a quite short time, so two months, uh, I would say that it's... We live in a different attitude. It's a different attitude to what's really going on here. But there are two exceptions, and these yeah. are usual suspects, and these are France and Germany, who continue to their rhetoric that look, the, our key goal was to uh, prevent further escalation of this war or further spillover of this war. As if the, they were saying, okay, Ukrainians are dying, this is not important. Uh, the, the, the key thing, well, Bucha massacre, well, it's uh, some barbaric Ukrainians who died uh, or whatever, but we should prevent this from escalation. I mean, this word escalation just drives me crazy. I mean, what, what escalation are you talking, what possible escalation can we talk about after Bucha? I mean, this would be the same as if, uh, you know, after uh, after the first examples of uh, of uh, Holocaust, uh, we would be saying, okay, the most important thing is to avoid escalation. Unfortunately, this war, the statements of Mr. Macron, uh, the candidate or the president of French Republic, uh, in his debates with Marine Le Pen. Of course, Macron's position is much better than Ma the position better, of, yeah. of Marine Le Pen. And he's sending Caesars, important weapons called Caesars, to, to Ukraine now. So rhetorics, but still rhetorics is just to say that we will never let this war become 
become our war. So it is a war in Ukraine. So it's it's war be- between Russia and Ukraine. And so we will help Ukraine, but we will do everything possible for, for it not to touch us directly. So and believe, believe us, Mr. Macron, we are interested in the same. We are not interested in uh, the war going to Poland, Czech Republic, France, uh, Spain, Germany. Portugal, Germany, etc. We want this war to end as soon as possible ourselves. Uh, Mr. Scholz also was, uh, th- th- was this was a ver- very strange uh, situation from Germany when they were promised uh, some military aid and said no, uh, then it will not be in these volumes, then uh, Germany should have also tanks to defend itself in case of uh, Russia's aggression. Well, this is good that they project that the Russian aggression on Germany uh, is possible. This is a- at least good. What we can judge, another one of the another uh, lessons from this war, is that if you let Russia occupy certain territories, that helps Russia to occupy other territories. That's what we have been already saying. If Russia didn't occupy Crimea, no more genocide in Mariupol would have been possible. Yeah, sure, for sure. And, uh, even technically, even e- Even technically. If Russia didn't occupy Belarus, no butcher would have been possible because... To the northern uh, northern part of Ukraine was occupied, including the Kiev outskirts, was occupied uh, through Belarusian territory. So, if Russia takes control of a Belarus, you should expect uh, its aggression against Baltic states, uh, Poland, in the coming years. If it uh, occupies Poland, you can expect aggression uh, against other Western European countries in the coming years. But at the same time, maybe let's move on and talk about our third big conclusion of this two-month war. It's about Russian weakness. So nobody expected this big, this great Russian army being so helpless in in Kiev outskirts and everywhere in the north of the country, uh, really helpless. And even after this defeat in the north, when they were preparing this big battle in Donbass, uh, let's re- let's remind that it was it, it lasted for weeks. They were preparing, they were gaining troops, they were preparing weapons, and then we were waiting for many weeks for for it to start. And what we see now. This uh, second stage of this Russian, Russian aggression started, I don't know exactly, three days ago, four days ago, they declared it to start officially. But we don't see any kind of spectacular, I don't know, spectacular battle. It's kind of a kind of an artillery voice, an exchange of, uh, exchange of uh, all that. But they are not showing any significant success at that very moment. So... All their successes, they were in the past. I mean, when they entered from Crimea to Kherson and Mariupol, when they were um, they, they managed to, to get some more territories in the east, but they are not progressing quickly now. What does it mean? And what we see at the same time? We see, for example, soldiers from Syria and from Libya here in Popasna last week. I mean, killed soldiers already were reported by Ukrainian army. It means that they are already using... Uh, foreigners in this war and when we see what they do in Mariupol there were um, there was a kind of mobilization in occupied territories in Donetsk and Lugansk and they used a lot of people from I mean Ukrainians in in fact so in Ukrainians were fighting against Ukrainians and there is this dramatic story about musicians about musicians from Donetsk who were mobilized for this war and they are all dead at this very moment moment unfortunately and further one what, what's russia doing in kherson we receive information from kherson that they are already starting this mobilization in kherson so they are trying to to to, to get more troops from ukrainians to fight against ukrainians in donbass and when we try to to look at what because their best parts of their army i mean all these uh, troops, uh, they were destroyed around Kiev. And they have some doubts and some hesitations about this general mobilization. Because in order to proclaim general mobilization, they should call this war a war. They would decree that this is a war against Ukraine. That's They will have right to, to for the general mobilization. But at the same time, it will not help. This general mobilization will not help Russian army. Why? Because they don't have enough weapons. 
for that. So what they can can they do? They are mobilizing he, people here in Ukraine, somewhere in Syria, some East Far East Army was traveling here to Ukraine. But this is simply not enough to have this to have this convinc convincing I don't know resultant attack in Donbas, and they and the time is playing against them because they. As, expert, as military experts say, they have one, two weeks, maybe three weeks maximum to attack massively and then to develop their success. But at that very moment, you don't see this kind of energetic beginning. You know, We don't see that. They will be losing people and tanks and the weapons progressively and they will be simply exhausted in two weeks and they will be obliged to take a pause, to take a break, you know. And the Ukrainian army will be able to use this break to counterattack. Uh, because we do know that Western aid is arriving here in Ukraine these days. So Russian army is not this big, great Soviet, I don't know, red army. So this image of Russian army is also destroyed. And this is a result of the two, two months of war. Another conclusion is that there is inhumane cruelty of Russian army. And uh, this leads us to the question, to the big question. I mean, when we see all those photos from Bucha, when we see the mass graves in Mariupol, right now we, we are observing these satellite images in Mariupol where the, the graves uh, near the city, 20 kilometers near the city, there are new and new collective graves. Th some uh, some of them are three uh, three hundred meters long, and they can include several thousands of bodies. Some say up to nine thousand of bodies. According to some ex estimations, there are over twenty thousand dead in Mariupol. Many people are deported. Many people are in the filtration camps. Half a million, according to what we know from Ukrainian officials, half a million is deported to Russia, I mean, uh, on the whole territory. So it's a huge number. It's a, it's a deportation to Russia. Yes, <clears throat> the typical Russian tactics. But uh, what also strikes us, well, maybe it's not surprising for Ukrainians because many foreign journalists are asking whether you are you are uh, surprised with Russian cruelty. And I'm, I'm personally saying no. Because even before the war, uh, I was writing pieces called Sado-Putinism uh, and, and this sadism of Russian political culture in which there is no horizontal relations, there are only vertical relations. You are either having power and having a right to exert violence or you're somebody on whom the power and violence is exerted. And power and violence are, are, are always very close uh, concepts in, in this Russian mind or Eastern European mind. And, uh, and this inhumane cruelty, I mean, it leads us to the conclusion that, well, it's not Putin's war. There is somebody in the minds of these Russian soldiers who come, who rape Ukrainian women, who rape Ukrainian children, and there are so many reports of the raped Ukrainian children on the eyes of their parents, and the raped Ukrainian uh, women on the eyes of, of their parents or of their children, and people who are, you know, mutilated and who are uh, tortured. tortured, and their bodies mutilated, their, their heads cut, etc. So it's, it, it is really horrible, and we're asking the question, where does this come from? And uh, and unfortunately, it comes from this uh, very specific political culture or social culture in which there is no value of human life whatsoever. And an important maybe uh, part of this story is that this Russian army, they're not people who live in Moscow, I don't know, in St. Petersburg, in big cities. This is not a kind of elite of the society. This army is composed of people living somewhere to the east of the country, normally from quite poor regions. And they have they were impressed, we imagine, when they saw what they saw in Bucha. In Bucha, it's quite a, quite a nice city, I don't know. I, I would not say rich city, but it is, it is close to Kiev. It's middle close to, middle mi class, middle bourgeois, class, yes. middle. And they were maybe seen for the first time in their lives. I mean, I would close it. I mean, a civilized civilized one inside the house. And for example, this 
all these kinds of uh, things they were trying to 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 steal, like for example, washing machines, maybe luxury for them. So, so it was also, I think, this violence... Social revenge. It was a kind of social revenge as well, you know. So we are here, we can do everything what we... They are more rich, richer than we are, so we can just revenge against them. So it was um, important maybe for, for explanation, one of the explanations of this Russian cruelty. And uh, we have lots of interceptions by Ukrainian intelligence services, lots of interceptions <laughs> of the talks... Um, of the talks between uh, Russian soldiers and their mothers or their, their girlfriends uh, uh, or their friends. And this is remarkable. I mean, all this talk, uh, it's, uh, for example, it's, it's full of obscene words, uh, including with, with the mothers. I mean, normally we, we don't use obscene words talking with, the, with our parents normally, but they and, and their parents are using these obscene words in talking with their sons. And they're describing all that, Desc describing the fact, okay, I, I entered the house and uh, I found five five thousand dollars and we just uh, spread, shared between ourselves, between soldiers. And five thousand dollars for that uh, woman who listens to it is just enormous and sum of money and, and she just praises uh, his boyfriend or his husband for, for taking this sum of money because they will be able to live on that, etc. And really they're, they're stealing carpets, they're stealing, I mean, washing machines, they're stealing uh, water closets, um, you know, b bijouteries, everything, everything they could steal. And this, this is... This is this is impressive. Yeah, but this is uh, in conclusion what we have. We have that this is a sign of weakness. You know, you cannot combat with the army which is doing with is committing these kind of crimes. This kind of army is not able to progress uh, quickly. You know. And uh, so uh, you know. We should be aware of this of this Russian cruelty and, and the cruelty which is which is inside this Russian society among the rank and file soldiers. We should be aware of this instinct of cruelty, instinct of violence. My hypothesis is that this is the key social capital, capacity to violence. Maybe this is very intelligently formulated, but capacity to violence is the key social capital in, in Russian society. If you're capable of violence, you can prove that you are a man, you are, you're, you know, you are capable of, of, of committing violence. If you're not capable of that, uh, you cannot prove. You cannot prove your status in this society. Still, and maybe it, it is about our next conclusions, we've observed the kind of changes, uh, sometimes radical changes in this Russian discourse about what was going on. So what was the beginning? The beginning w was that uh, Putin was talking about, uh, about what? He was talking about destruction the Ukrainian state, he was talking about denazification, demilitarization, he was writing articles about what? About that the Ukrainian doesn't exist, Ukraine doesn't exist as a state, as a country, as people, because it's just, just a part of Russian people or state. Um, but uh, two months later, when they officially rearranged the objectives of their second stage, how they call st second period of their campaign, it is not about that. This is about liberalization. So this is about liberalization of Donbass. Liberation. Liberation. Mm -hmm. Liberation, mm -hmm. sorry. And about this uh, corridor to Crimea, just uh, a manner to link uh, Donbass to Crimea. So they are coming back to this uh, old idea of Novorossiya, so in other terms. Novorossiya, so the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine belonging or just being different from Ukraine or belonging to Russia, whatever. So they're trying to come back to 2014. So to the they're, actually, they're actually, uh, I'm reading this statement as a, as a search uh, for exit. Uh, because yeah, sure. uh, ba basically they're saying, okay, we occupied some of the southern territories, some of the eastern territories, and we need to stop. We, ca we cannot do it longer. So they will, will try to this, make this encirclement in the Donbass. If they fail, they fail, but they will still say, okay, we, we stop on this if Ukrainians let them, to, uh, let them uh, do no, that. No, they will not let but, them. Uh, but obviously, I mean, they are not, uh, not talking about Ukraine anymore. 
as a country, that they want to demilitarize it. Actually, they remilitarized Ukraine in many aspects because they Ukrainians captured many of the Russian equipments and they got uh, lots of equipment from the West. So and this they is a demilitarize themselves because each day they lose missiles, they lose tanks, they lose all these kind of weapons, they lose people. I mean soldiers, so in a way, and they have no resource resources to I don't know to to revitalize all that. So, uh, in a way, Russia is demilitarizing itself in this conflict, and yeah. denazif- denazifying. Denazification well, it's, it's well. unfortunately it's renazifying it itself, but we will talk about it later in uh, uh, very shortly when we talk about typically about Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation. What else? Maybe the last conclusion is that uh, Ukrainian resilience is strong and it's getting stronger. We are asked by foreign journalists, look, uh, how much time will Ukrainians be able to keep this morale? I think this this is the wrong question because this time can be indefinite. Every new day of the war just increases this morale. So it's not a question about morale. It's a question about supplies. It's a question about material things. It's a question whether in the East right now we will have enough artillery, enough shells, enough ammunition, in, in enough medical supplies. As one of uh, prominent Ukrainian war journalists, Yuri Butusov, said, the war currently is all about logistics. Yeah, exactly. And the information of this resilience, of the strength of this resilience, is that all Ukrainians understand now, so, so we know everything about Russia. And we do know that this battle, it is not about some kind of territory. It's not about one more village in the east or one more village in, in the south. It's about the existential right of Ukraine to exist. And we do know from our empirical experience that if we let Russia stop their way it is now, so if if we will it will be a kind of ceasefire or whatever and this story will be will last, it will only mean another war in I don't know, in several months, in several years. So we do understand that we cannot give up simply because they will continue to aggress us at every single moment when they can. So this is why you can explain why Ukraine, they, they are so resilient because they do everybody understand that this is this should be the end of the game. Otherwise, they, we will have another bloody war in, in, in several months or years. Our next chapter, uh, we will have two short chapters in the, at, the, at the end of this podcast. We'll talk about traditionally uh, about Russian propaganda and uh, there are some very interesting things going on about Russian discourse and we will talk about testimonials of people who are, uh, we do it regularly uh, at Ukraine World, we collect testimonials of of people, of, of their lives. So, propaganda. So, it's interesting, you know, that Russians are right now changing the discourse and uh, this change can be quite dangerous uh, because the the change of the discourse is from a a punishing war. So, they, they, they were presenting this war as a kind of a punishment of Ukraine or prevention or whatever. Now, they turn it more and more to the defensive war. So, they they're trying to... Uh, stress that um, we, the Russians, are defending actually, and the Russians are under threat. So on one of the shows with Skabeva and all this uh, pandemonium, one of the speakers, and we shared it uh, through Ukraine World, and it you, you can also find it on uh, Russian Media Monitor, a project by American project actually, by Julia Davis. Uh, she posted it on Twitter. So a, a speaker was saying that actually. Uh, this war is a genocide of Russians. Can you oh, imagine really? that? So uh, this is a genocide Why? of Russians. How do you... Why? Because, well, this is, uh, it was very difficult to, to understand. Why? And at a certain moment, I understood that Skabeva herself did not quite understand what, what he was talking about and trying to kind of develop uh, develop this logic because it's it, it's very difficult. So imagine a rapist who is saying that the, his act, he raped a, a woman and said, actually, this woman raped me. It looks like, yeah. Uh, uh, or imagine a killer who just killed a person and said, well, actually, it's not me who killed this person. Uh, and I was not preventing him from killing me. Actually, he killed, just killed me. 
So I don't exist. I am killed. I think th this is something we can compare it with. So the argument is that, of course, Russia was dragged into this war by bloody Americans. I just don't understand. Well, you know, in, in the Russian mind, th this was all about dragging into. So, нас втянули в эту войну. As if you are, as if, you know, these Russian tanks, all this logistics, everything was just dragged in by some magnet or somebody, you know. Yeah. So this is this is so ridiculous, but, but they are believing in it. So Americans dragged in Russians into this war. And with the Russians as well, Lukashenko's argument were exactly the same. He was uh, talking about prevention of the war, why why Belarus helped Russia so, so much in the beginning. It's because they were preventing Ukrainian aggression, as if Ukrainians were yeah. preparing themselves to, to attack, yeah. or, I don't know, Belarus or Russia. What? So this is a typical logic of this defensive uh, defensive war, and, and the, the argument of this personality was saying that um, Americans dragged in Russians to kill Ukrainians, but we know that Ukrainians are not Ukrainians but Russians, so Russians are killing Russians, and by killing uh, themselves, they are destroying Russian genotype. Can you imagine this? I mean, I, I mean, it's okay, it's probably not, not not correct to laugh at these at these uh, tragedies, but but I mean, how can you, how can you just logically, uh, logically explain it? And I think there is the explanation that Russians are actually not creative at all. They take the disc, the Western discourse, and they're trying to turn it against the West, to turn it against Ukraine. It's the so-called what aboutism. Or as our friend Vahtan uh, Kibuladze, Ukrainian philosopher, is calling that the shadow of civilization. So they take something from the West, from Ukraine, and distort it and send it back. Mm -hmm. So, okay, the West is saying that Bucha is a genocide, or Ukrainians are saying that Bucha is a genocide against Ukrainians. No, it's a genocide against Russians, you know. Another, uh, another topic, another narrative that we tracked on uh, Novoros Inform, that uh, this is actually a war for independence for Russia. Independence of Russia from the Western colonial empire. Can you imagine that? So, so as if Russia is or would be a kind of a part of Western empire. <laughs> so basically they take Ukrainian narrative, anti-colonial narrative, saying that you, Russia, is empire, we, Ukraine, is a colony, uh, well, and they just reverse it and say, no, 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 <laughs> we are the colony. The Russia is the colony. It's colonized uh, by And by the, they're colonized by the West, etc., etc. So, Vaina uh, za nezavisimost, that's what, how they call it, that Nova Russia ili smerť. Nova Russia ili smerť, well, this is also Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian slogan, freedom or death, vola abo smerť. So, they just copying Ukrainian Copy uh, slogans, you know. Uh, what else? It is important. So they are trying to uh, right now when Latvia and Lithuania recognized uh, the events in in Ukraine, Russian atrocities as genocide. They are of course blaming uh, Latvia and Lithuania in neo-Nazism. Well, this is uh, and and they want demilitarization, denazification of Lithuania, Latvia, and, and Estonia. Oh, this is a sign. So it's it's already pronounced. Uh, it's uh, on the website Ukraina Ru. Uh, uh, interview interview with yes uh, by Ria Novosti. Interview with Alexander Nosovich, who is chief editor of analytical portal Ru Baltic Ru. So he was talking about demilitarization, denazification of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, this is this is what's what's going on in their propaganda. This is also very big anti-Polish narrative, demonization of Poland. This is what what we are basically look into. Thanks to our partners from Texty or UA, they quote News Front Info, who is saying. Well, one of the Russian propagandist sites, who is saying that modern Poland builds its historical mythos around the beginning of the war, meaning this uh, the Second World War. It poses as a long-suffering victim, etc. Blah blah blah, and uh, 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 and it has the potential of rewriting and twisting history, etc. Japan also is presented as as the new enemy. So the uh, this list of Russophobic, so-called Russophobic states, is uh, is in, is enlarging. 
yeah so this is what russian propaganda is now about and i, I think we need to take it very seriously because I don't think that the narrative that Ukraine should be punished can mobilize lots of people in Russia. But the narrative that this is a defensive war, this is a war for independence for Russia from the West, uh, this is the war against uh, genocide against Russians, this can mobilize people in Russia. And, yeah, and, uh, and shelling of uh, Western regions in Russia, what they were already doing during the last weeks, this could mobilize more people as well because they are already they were already shelling their own villages in order to accuse Ukraine and in some regions there is already a yellow level of um, anti-terrorist uh, terrorist defense so they need several more attacks some more attacks and they will introduce a red level and it would directly mean that they they will have right to mobilize people in this region to the army So that would be kind of direct consequences of that. And maybe some testimonies. Yeah, maybe some testimonies. So uh, let's let's go to specific human stories that we publish on our Twitter, Ukraine World. One of the stories about uh, a man who is called Oleg, who was in the near the Bucha. And um On February 28th, Russian vehicles moved through the village of Makariv in the direction of Kiev. There were, were ma many equipment and there was a territorial defense uh, around uh, his town. And Oleg Tkachuk uh, heard about the needs of this native village and he volunteered to bring fuel. So he went to bring fuel and uh, uh, he, he was on the uh, Zhitomer Highway. They reached the gas station, but they found a young girl, Alona, who was six months pregnant, uh, worked in this gas station, and uh, Oleg uh, convinced Alona that it was dangerous for a pregnant girl to stay stay there. And uh, Alona's father, who is refueler at the same gas station, said, yes, take my daughter away quickly and come back. And they got in the car, drove away, taking her home. Oleg came back to the fuel station because he needed to fuel the fuel for territorial defense. And uh, suddenly he did notice the Russian tanks in the left lane of the road and they started firing at cars. So Oleg in, and his friend ran out of the car towards the forest, jumped into the uh, first pits they saw. Oleg began shooting videos of the Russian equipment to pass this information to the army. Despite Russian shelling, Oleg continued to film and sent a video to his friend. But uh, the ending is tragic. Oleg's friend fled to a nearby village, but Oleg was found in the pit uh, where he was filming videos and this was his body without a head. So apparently Russian tank just uh, shelled at him and his body was uh, mutilated but uh, you know pre before that this just ordinary person saved uh, two two other people including a uh, pregnant pregnant woman this is one of our of our story another story is um yana osipova who was faced the russian invasions twice in her life Uh, our life will never be the same again. I said these words to my husband in May 2014. I say the same words to him yesterday. Back then we had left Donetsk under shelling and headed towards Kiev. On February 24th uh, this year we were already driving under explosions from Kiev towards Zhitomer. Uh, do you know why I was not so scared back in 2014? Because we had a backup plan. We had an apartment in Kiev bought back, back in 2011. Uh, for the first year, we found various short-term housing options for our family with all the children and relatives because we were sure that everything would end soon and we would return to Donetsk. In April 2015, I realized that I was tired and we moved to into, into an apartment in Kiev. So we started from scratch and we had lost everything in Donetsk. My husband's parents' business had ground to a halt. Uh, the house was bombed. Uh, only in 2018 did we begin to return to approximately the same quality of life we had in Donetsk. Now everything is different. Now we are confused. I don't know where to go and what to do next. 
I can't believe that fate was played this cruel joke on us for the second time. How can this be? How now we don't have a plan B? So uh, this is, and we have another story also of two sisters uh, who were fleeing from the war twice. Uh, this is a long actually story about Hanna and Tatiana, who were born into a Russian-speaking family in Donetsk, grew up, grew up in Donbass, and uh, uh, when Donetsk was occupied by Russians, they moved to Kiev. They were living. Uh, in Irpin, and Irpin is also this the city now destroyed the the Kiev suburb. So you can read this story. You know th these are not uh, so horrible stories, probably that uh, we also collect, and there are also many other horrible stories uh, that you can read about the rape, about torture, etc. But these human stories also of people who, for example, fled. Uh, the occupation twice, first in Donetsk and, and then living in the suburbs of Kiev and now uh, fleeing from the suburbs of Kiev or, or in Mariupol. Many people from Donetsk were, you know, they fled to Mariupol at this time or to Berdyansk, for exactly, example. Exactly, exactly. There was a and huge number of people coming from Donetsk to Mariupol in 2014. Yes, that's it. But let's hope that these all these people who survived will be able to return not only to Kiev, which is happening now, what is happening now, but also to Donetsk, maybe in, in coming years. Let's stay optimistic about the end of this war. We are all convinced that there is no other historical chance for you for Ukraine, and there is no other historical uh, outcome of this war. So I, I think that Ukraine and our Western partners we cannot just allow russia to do that again so this is a kind of non non returning point so we are able to stop russia and if we are able to stop it we will be able to to push it away from the ukrainian sovereign territory i mean also including donetsk and lugansk and crimea and crimea sure uh, this was Explaining Ukraine podcast uh, by ukraineworld.org. Uh, this is the series about the war is co-production by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm chief editor at ukraineworld.org. We are making this podcast with Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Follow us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you take the, your podcasts. And uh, support Ukraine. You can support us, the Ukraine world, at patreon.com slash Ukraine world. But you can also support Ukraine in many other ways. There are so many websites collecting this support. And uh, let me assure you that if you are taking, if you're working with Ukrainian volunteers, uh, I mean, majority, like 99% of them, maybe there are bad people around, but 99% of them are just, you know, people doing this work fantastically and without any 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 material benefit, etc. So support Ukraine, uh, support us, uh, stay, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.